You're listening to And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And on today's episode, we have an author interview. Uh, we're talking to Payal Doshi, the author of Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar, um, a middle grade fantasy um, that's coming out in about a week on June 15, 2021. Yes, the book is a middle grade fantasy about 12-year-old Rhea Chetri, who portals into an otherworldly realm to go on a secret quest to find her missing twin brother, Rohan. Um, this was a pretty fun read uh, for those of you who are fans of Arusha and uh, Chronicles of Narnia and pretty much fantasy books where children go through magical portals <laughs> into like magical worlds. This, this is probably your jam. Uh, we had a really fun conversation with uh, Payel about diversity and um, not seeing yourself represented in, in I guess, like, tropey quest fantasies that we grow up reading. Um, yeah, we also and- talked to her about world building and how she came up with the character of Rhea, who is a spunky 12-year-old with a lot of, um, would you say, attitude or? A lot of <laughs> insecurities, I guess. <laughs> Learning how to be a good friend, learning how to appreciate the people around around her. A very important uh, lesson that a lot of adults could use as, as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so without further ado, um, please enjoy our conversation with Kyle Doshi. Hello, and we are here with Payal Doshi, the author of Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar. Uh, We are so excited to have her on the show. Uh, Her book is a middle grade fantasy adventure, and I'm pretty sure our uh, Indian American readers uh, out there are going to be very excited for this book. It's coming out on June 15th. Uh, Hi, Payal. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the launch of your book. Uh, how has it been? Like I, I saw on your Instagram stories, your your first unboxing of your the first like print. Like how was that? How's that feeling? Oh my gosh. Uh, so surreal. Uh, I feel like it was like this mixture of relief, happiness, disbelief. Uh, I've lived with this book for about 10 years, it you know it took me 10 years to write this book, and then it took me about two years to sell this book. And then this whole last year has been, you know, a lot of everything, just the general situation in the world. And then at the same time, it was all of these, you know, highs of book news, like your cover coming out and seeing that for the first time. And then, you know, getting your arc out to people to read and then getting those early reviews. Like there are so many of those like insanely surreal <laughs> moments. But I mean, nothing beat holding it in your hands. I feel like there's a before and after. Like there's a the before pile and like the after pile (laughs) after the book is in my hand. Um, It was incredible. Like I was so nervous. You know, you have all of these imaginations and expectations about what your book would be like. And then you hold it and I smelled it. You know, we all do that, right? Oh, yeah. Like the new new book smell. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And like I touched the quality of the paper and had that like, you know, lovely, like creamy yellow color. And like, oh, my God, it was like all of those things like, like fangled over my own book. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was awesome. And um, so now I'm even more excited for the launch in June because I know that it's, you know, it's a really good looking book as well that readers will have and hold and I'll hopefully love the story as well. So it's very exciting. Very, very exciting. Yeah, it's a real colorful cover. And as someone who used to buy books based on how pretty the color looked, I think it's definitely eye-catching. And, you know, um, I'm sure there are kids like me who, when we see someone Asian on the cover, we're like, okay, I'm immediately intrigued in this story, no matter what it is. I I would think so, too. And I hope so. uh, Because... I don't even know what that feels like because I never saw myself 
(laughs) As a kid, I never saw myself in any of the books that I read, uh, let alone on the cover of books. Um, But I know from people who have seen the cover, especially, and have uh, I've received so many DMs and messages just saying that, oh, my God, like she looks like me. Like this is insane, (laughs) you know, and like it just just reminds you how important and needed um, books with underrepresented minorities are just like so, so needed in the world today. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't believe like that wasn't the norm because I because now there are so many books with Asian faces on the cover. But a lot of people forget that this is something that we had to fight for. Uh, there were stories where uh, the characters are Asian, but the person on the cover is white or they just use text because they think that Asian characters aren't marketable. So it is nice to see all of this progress, but people do forget that like it. <laughs> It was not always a thing. Kids oh, no. these days have it easy. They have oh, yeah. it so good. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely do. Um, absolutely. I mean, it. you know, especially now that I have this book, it just baffles me how anybody, you know, especially up in the publishing um, in the companies and up there in those top levels would like thought that having an Asian kid on the cover would deter readers from reading the book when, you know, all of us grew up reading white characters and we didn't look like them and we didn't go like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> that doesn't look like me. So, nope, that's not for me. I mean, we, none of us would have been readers, let alone anyone turning into writers. So it's just a ridiculous notion. And I'm just, I'm so glad that it's changing and the change is here to stay. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. Um, since starting this book club, I have not read a single book with a white character um, just because of, um, but it's amazing that I'm able to do that over five years of reading like a book a month, you know? That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So with a lot of middle grade authors, I've noticed that they, um, a lot of the times they write books that they were unable to read when they were younger. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have a lot of own voices, diverse works now. Uh, So my question is, what did you grow up reading and what inspired you to become a writer? Um, So I grew up in Mumbai, India and, uh, you know, yay colonization um, oh, I, grew up, <laughs> uh, I grew up on a lot of British literature, more British literature than English literature, especially when I was a kid. Um, so I devoured books by Enid Blyton. She wrote Famous Five, The Secret Seven. It's a extremely popular books and they have like at least like 50 books in these series. I read each and every one of them. Um, and they were like adventure stories, like Five go on an adventure to find something or the and, uh, famous five were mystery novels. And um, so I just, I loved that aspect of children's literature where the like, kids are off on their own, doing their own thing and solving mysteries and going on adventures. She also wrote a lot of fantasy books. So I read, so I, so Ina Blinn was like the biggest influence. And then the book that got me truly loving stories uh, was Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. I That just for some reason has been like my defining book whenever I think back to what got me to become an avid reader. Uh, I just loved Anne as a character. She was, I guess, probably the first one that I read. And I was probably 10 or 11 when I read that book where she was, you know, she's a tomboy and she doesn't care about what people think. She says what comes you know, comes to her mind. She gets into trouble for it. Like she's a tomboy and she's got a temper and she uses these big words and she has this massive imagination. And like, Anne almost yeah, resonated with me because she sort of gave me permission to be who I wanted to be. Like I was that kid who uh, carried a pocket dictionary in her school bag and I would like look up the words to find out because I would be like so excited to learn a new word. Um, and like, you know, so I, so that was Anna Green Giggles was, my like one of my most favorite books and uh i read a lot of nancy drew and seed valley high so i guess all of those put together sort of defined the books of my childhood um and then to answer your question about how i became a writer it's funny because i i wasn't one of those writers who knew from the get-go that they wanted to be writers like when they were seven or eight i had no idea what i wanted to do in fact i studied uh, business management in my undergraduation. I went and got my master's in creative management and, you know, was in the business field. Um, and I realized that 
I, I needed my creative itch to be sort of scratched. So then that's how I landed up into magazine publishing. And I ended up writing through writing articles and uh, for magazines. Um, and that's when so I was about 23 when I realized that this is kind of what I want to do. But I, I, I don't want to write what an editor is telling me to write. So it basically went from I like writing, but this job is causing me extreme frustration. And I was very demotivated. And so one morning I was like, you know, I just really want the freedom to write what I want to write. What that was, I had no idea. But like I opened up my laptop and I stared at the screen and I just wrote whatever came to my mind at that point. And I wrote two paragraphs about this eight-year-old girl who goes into these forbidden woods behind her house that she's obviously not allowed to go to. And there's like something magical happens and she gets freaked out and she runs back outside. And I had so much fun writing that and I hadn't felt that fulfilled doing something so simple in like such a long time. And I just knew at that moment that that's what I wanted to do. So I went to my parents and I was like, would you be okay if I quit my job and wrote a book? (laughs) (laughs) And Indian parents, so you'd be like, "Mm." but no, my parents are really cool and they thought it was awesome. So they really encouraged me. That's great. Um, Yeah. And so that was the genesis of Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar, actually, because, you know, things have changed. She's not eight in the book anymore, but a a version, a very polished version of that scene still exists in the book. Um, And so that's how I came to be a writer. Also, I, you know, again, because there were no Indian writers that I could relate to uh, growing up, there were, you you did have the greats, the literary greats, (laughs) but they always seemed, you know, very high up there. Like, they're not something that you can aspire to be. They're just, you know so lofty. Um, and so I never thought, I loved reading, just never thought of that that could be translated into being a writer or an author. So it's a very long drawn process, but I'm really glad that I eventually landed up here. Yeah, that's amazing. It gives hope to the rest of us, like Asian late bloomers who had to, you know, do the, do the respectable majors for our parents. <laughs> yeah, I love that Asian late bloomers. That is, <laughs> yes. I just feel like I should put that in my bio. <laughs> We've we've had a lot of late bloomers on this show, and we've also had some very early bloomers like uh, Rebecca Kwong and Chloe yeah. Gong. Oh. They them like releasing books when they're still in undergrad, and it's unbelievable. like how <laughs> unbelievable. What was I doing in undergrad? Let's not even go there. No. I just I felt so <laughs> old and unaccomplished when I was talking to those kids. Yes. And wow, what books they've written. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's really yeah. interesting that um, like a lot of your inspiration, a lot of the books that you read were like Nancy Drew mm-hmm. and like fantasy, because I see those components in uh, Rhea. Um, I, I see a little bit of Chronicles of Narnia with yeah. like the whole like portal fantasy, it, this world where nature is part of like a huge part of like the magical fantasy aspect of the world. And for Marvin and I, like whenever we read fantasy, um, we're always impressed by the world building. We're always impressed by like the rules of magic. Uh, so if you can talk to us a little, little bit about how you created the world of uh, Astranthia. I'm, I'm not sure how, I, how I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> yeah, I say Astranthia. Um, yes, you're very close. Um, yeah, so me too. I mean, one of the most amazing parts about a fantasy novel is the fantasy world itself. You just want to be immersed in it completely. And so that was my, like, I knew that from the get-go. I wanted both worlds, actually. I wanted Darjeeling, that's the India part of the book, as well as Astranthi, to be very lush and verdant and immersive lands. Um, and so I... Uh, and 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 because of that too, I I use nature to be a very integral part of the magic system. In my mind, when I think of fantasy lands, I just think of these supremely lush and gorgeous places. And so it was very intuitive for me to write uh, these big landscapes uh, and describe that in detail, uh, and to have you know your sort of your eye, your sight, your sound, your senses kind of feel all of those aspects in the land. Uh, and that was a very important part in the world building process for me. Um, the other reason why I wanted nature to be such an integral part of the system, of the magic system, was kind of just, you know, a nod to the fact that we take nature for granted and that so much of our entire life depends on nature. It can just take one 
you know, catastrophe to ruin things. And we just take these things for granted. And I kind of wanted to talk about how we need to nurture nature. Um, and so that kind of was the genesis of the magic system for me. But then it was very much, uh, you know, hit or miss. And I, I, I wrote myself into so many dead ends. Um, for example, and this was so late in the game, I had already sold my book. Um, and we were on the first round of developmental edits with my editor. And she's like, okay, so in your magic system, as it was written before, uh, you know, royalty has magic and the common folk don't have magic. It's probably the biggest trope. And it's, again, one of those things that you don't realize that has been ingrained in you in all of these books that you write. So when you write them, you, you know, when I wrote it, it just, it sort of came out. I was like, yes, you know, royal people have magic and ordinary people don't have magic. So, and I didn't think twice about it. So she pointed that out. So she's like, uh, so that's the way your magic system works, right? I said, yes. So she's like, so are you trying to say that only the rich and the superior can have magic and that the poor don't because they don't, they're not rich. And I was like, no, oh gosh, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that these guys are superior because they have magic and that the ordinary folk are not. And she was like, okay. She said, but you know that that's kind of what it means. And I'm like, Oh my lord! No, no, no! So add that. So I mean, man, the whole book is written, sold, and I had to go back and change the magic system, the rules of the magic system, and who gets to have magic and who doesn't have to get magic. And then I had to really think long and hard as to how I wanted that magic to work. How should people have it? And so now in the book, everybody is born with it, but it takes a few number of tests, like personal challenges and tests that a person has to overcome in order to unlock different uh, levels of their magic. So everybody can do it. Anybody can do it, but you need a lot of willpower and, and it'll test your courage and it'll test all of these qualities in you to get it. Um, and so, yeah, so that's just, I think, an example of how I sort of wrote myself into a dead end there, uh, not realizing at all what my magic system meant when you thought about it on a deeper level. Yeah, I mean, that's what rewrites are for, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I I'm glad that uh, your editor was able to catch that and you were able to uh, fix it in the rewrites, because I do like the fact that um, as long as you're able to overcome uh, the trials, as long as you mm -hmm. find courage and selflessness within yourself, which is a really big message in your book, yeah. uh, you are able to wield magic. And I really miss that about a lot of uh like fantasy books that I've read in the past. Um, I miss kids going to magical portals and doing these quests. <laughs> and I know it's tropey, but yes. the thing is, like, we didn't have those tropes with characters that looked like us, you know? <laughs> exactly. And the other reason why I wanted to write, like, a real commercial, uh, fun, thrilling adventure with South Asian kids was exactly that reason. And the fact that the balance of the stories that are told about underrepresented minorities always tilt more toward the pain stories and the struggle stories, and they are extremely needed. But we also need more of the stories where we are seen as happy characters, joyful characters who, you know, have their own struggles, but not always an identity struggle. And we need that balance. You know, I, I, I sometimes feel like I don't want a kid from an Asian background to just carry the weight <laughs> of this, you know, you know, that we, yes, we all have struggles, even a privileged person has struggled, not the same, but just to be like, oh, we're carrying the weight, you know, generational trauma and uh, immigrant trauma and general, you know, cultural trauma. It's like, it just becomes so much. I feel like our kids need a break. Like they can, they need to just you know, wield magic, be badass, <laughs> like ride dragons, you know, do fun things, save worlds and, you know, be heroes. And that's, uh, yeah. And so that's why I wrote this very tropey <laughs> um, portal fantasy. But I, I do think that there are unique elements about it, hopefully, that uh, will not make it seem as tropey. I mean, that's true, because thinking back, like outside of my, you know, like Chinese translated Japanese mangas and stories growing up, 
the first time I read an Asian American character was probably Joy Luck Club, and that wasn't a happy story at all. No, right? <laughs> and and as as Indians, we don't even have manga equivalents to take us off on these. We have our mythology. I was about to and, say, you guys have your mythology. <laughs> we have our mythology, but I will say this: we're really bad as a a culture. It's slowly changing now. But I feel like, you know, America is so good and especially the West also so good with taking their mythology and making it so accessible. I was a kid in the 90s. The Ramayana and the Mahabharata, such fat, thick books that there was no way unless someone like your grandparents or your parents happened to tell you the stories. So, you know, kind of bits and pieces and you, you see these really bad, bad TV renditions <laughs> on like your governmental TV channels. Like it was so bad. Oh, my gosh. Like, so, you know, they, just, they never made it cool. So we always gravitated towards the Enid Blittons and the Harry Potters. I mean, oh, let's okay, we all love those books. Let's not, you know, I'm not saying that that shouldn't have happened, but we we didn't end up loving our own culture and our own mythology and our stories as much as we revered the West or like even Greek mythology. Like mm. most people would know more about Greek mythology than they would know about Indian mythology in India. You know what I mean? Um, especially the nuances. You know the main guys and stuff like that. But then when so. Um, Which is wild so yeah. because I feel like Indian mythology, Hindu mythology is like just as crazy as Greek mythology, like just yes. as much, just as much like drama. sex and violence and drama. Yes, absolutely. And it was only when one of the one of the authors, his name is Ashok Banker, he wrote the Ramayana, uh, like a seven part uh, book series, but like written as a novel accessible to the public. <laughs> Uh, and kept a little, you know, modernized it a little bit uh, in terms of its language and stuff like that, that I picked it up and I loved it. And I was like, oh, my God, there's so much to this story than just Ram, you know, and Lakshman being exiled and going with Sita and Sita. Getting, you know, you just know the bare bones and you don't know the depth of the story. So anyway, <laughs> so because we never had that, and I, I didn't, you know, gravitate towards those stories as a kid. I, I just felt like, oh. An Indian kid never gets to do anything except like maths or I don't know, be the science geek or something like that. <laughs> like, you know, we're more than that. Um, so, yeah. Also, India is very, very diverse. I, I mean, I feel like in the West, when we think India, it's just like the big cities. But mm -hmm. your book takes place uh, partly in Darjeeling, like you said, mm -hmm. and it's not a big city. It's no a very rural town. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why you decided to set it in that town and uh, why you didn't pick like a big city, for example, like Mumbai? Absolutely. And I'm from Mumbai. Um, I wanted to write about a place that not too many people had heard about, a place that was stunning and beautiful and underrated for its beauty, its language, its people. Um, and Darjeeling is set in the northeast part of the country. You have the Himalayas as the backdrop. It's a hill station. Uh, it's, you know, it's where we get Darjeeling tea. Uh, I also thought it was just a unique landscape to set the book in, like these tea plantations. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of also break the stereotype. Like you said, when someone thinks of India, they just directly think of the cities or like they imagine a really rural village um you know slum dog millionaire the movie didn't do very much to help that image especially <laughs> with mumbai um and so i wanted to show a different side of the country you know i'm not saying that that doesn't exist like yes uh we do have our very crowded cities and uh all of those things but we also have these this you know gorgeous natural beauty in our country and i thought that darjeeling really represented that it also made for a great place to set the story in terms of Having her mother is a uh, you know tea picker, and um, the the descriptions of the land were you know I love descriptions, so I was like that just it, I just was drawn to it. Funny thing is, I never visited Darjeeling, and so I wrote this whole book. And um, thankfully, this was before I sold my book, but I was done with it, um, you know, all of its revisions. And then I flew back to India, and I told my mom we're going to go on a trip. Darjeeling because I need to make sure what I'm writing is actually accurate because you don't want the Darjeeling people coming at me with guns. I mean like Google Maps can only do so much. <laughs> yes and I will say this if there's any aspiring writer out there 
Uh, I used Google Maps. I bought books on Darjeeling. I studied the topography. I did all of this research that I thought was very extensive. And then I got to Darjeeling. And I, you know, set my book initially in the city of Darjeeling. And there is this scene in the book that uh, Rhea and her brother play a cricket match on the night of their 12th birthday. And that's the night he goes missing. And, um, and you know, cricket match is, you know, it's, it's, it's like a baseball field. You need a big area to play the match or the game, or at least you need a good flat clearing of land to play this game. And I go to Darjeeling and, you know, I got some of the things completely right, like the Himalayas, and I got the, the descriptions of tea plantations right. But it turns out the city of Darjeeling is literally in the hills and it the roads are so narrow. I mean, maybe a Jeep can fit and maybe five people next to the Jeep. Like that's the, the road that they're winding. And I'm like, there's no way they can play cricket here. So then I asked our <laughs> tour guide, I was like, so uh, is there, and then, and then, you know, they also, uh, Rhea goes to the lake to like sort of ponder over things because the brother is missing and she has to think about certain things. And I'm like, is there a lake nearby? He's like, no, maybe about two or three hours away. And in my story, I say she walks to the lake. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So it's like, I, so I fully recommend that if you're if you're writing about a real place, <laughs> go visit that place before uh, you you know write about it. Uh, and then I luckily found out, and I drove down to this place two hours uh, south called Mirik, and that I was so excited because when we got to Mirik, you know, it's on the foothills of Darjeeling, so it's still in the district of Darjeeling. You can still see the Himalayas. Uh, so all of those descriptors fit, but this had flat land uh, and, you know, you could drive up the hills. It also had hill, uh, tea plantations that were hilly, but it also had the flat land and it had a lake. So I then set it in the town of Meruk. I, I, I made it fictitious because I was so scared that if I kept it real, <laughs> I would still have missed details that people would have come at me for. So, uh, but I mirrored it around that town. Um so that was my funny story about Darjeeling. So yeah. yes, please visit visit <laughs> the places that you're you're including in your book. If that's you a that's already. a fun adventure that that <laughs> yeah. you took. Oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah. But it's great that you think about that stuff, right? I can think of like I imagine a lot of authors out there might not have been so meticulous because I don't know. I, I just feel like this type of you know the need to represent authentically is something that I guess we as like underrepresented people feel the burden of, right? 100%. I mean, I remember when my, uh, when the arc of the book was, you know, being circulated. I'm obviously just, you know, nervous about the reviews coming, but I was also really nervous about what the Indians were going to say about my book. And if you look at my reviews and you look at a lot of the Indian bloggers and reviewers who've reviewed my book, so many of them will say that, oh my God, thank God it was authentic. And that's kind of how I felt about you know, books that uh, even till today, if I, you know, even if it's an adult novel, um, I'll pick it up. And there's a part of me which is like, you know, inspecting for authenticity. Like, uh -huh, did she get this right? Did he get that right? And like, no, that. Uh, and it's, and it is definitely this burden that we carry. I mean, you know, it's like you got this one shot and you don't want to mess it up. Um, but I feel like anybody who's writing any book should feel like that about the story that they're telling, you know, own voices or not, um, especially if they're writing outside their culture. I could, I could not stress that anymore. I mean, I fretted about the terms that I used uh, for her grandmother and her mother. Um, I researched online, but that's one of the other reasons why I went to Darjeeling to ask them, you know, how do you, how do the kids, you know, what do the kids call their grandparents? Um, and their mother, because again, like you said, India is such a diverse country and we have so many languages and cultures that we each call our parents in a different way. So it was really important to get all of that down. And even then you don't, you can't get, because even in, in the same culture, you still don't, you know, use the exact same words and there are still differences in dialects. You can't get every single thing down, but, you know, try as best as you can. Yeah, I think I, I think a lot of authors from marginalized backgrounds, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of that pressure is just, you know, self-enforced. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I mean, it's a, it, it's 
it's sad because a lot of white authors who borrow from our culture, you know, like I, I'm not going to name this person, but uh, this person wrote a very famous book that was based on Japanese culture and his research was just mm-hmm. reading manga. Um, yes. I'm not sure if you know who this is. But I might. You might. <laughs> I might. Uh, so We're it's, subtweeting it's really, on this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might, but it's yes. really unfair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes. I, I do wish that that pressure was relieved for a lot of uh, POC authors. Um, I do want to move on to the characters because I think uh, Rhea is such a strong-willed, stubborn, uh, brave uh, 12-year-old. I keep forgetting that she's 12 <laughs> years old because <laughs> when I was 12, I feel like I was scared of everything. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. And I- I'm guessing you didn't have to portal lens to go save your brother. Oh, uh, no. no. <laughs> Not at I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so can you tell me like a little bit about uh, how you came up with Rhea and like why you decided to have um, her be twins with Rohan and how like this plot line of saving her brother uh, came about? Yeah, so, you know, I'm trying to think about why I made them twins. I think I just wanted them closer in age for the story. Um, I felt because I, I needed Rohan I wanted, I knew from the beginning that he was going to go missing because I wanted the sister saving the brother. Um, I didn't want the brother saving the sister, just basically didn't want to play into the damsel in distress trope. I wanted her to do it. I also wanted to kind of flip the story of Ramayana where, yes, we're talking about husband and wife there, but, you know, Ram goes to save Sita. And in this case, it's like, no, I want to switch it. So I want to make Rhea like Ram. Leela is like Lakshman, his best friend, and Ram becomes Sita, so like Rohan is Sita. So I kind of wanted to just sort of spin that a little bit. And then, you know, obviously I wanted, I wanted Rhea, I wanted to write a really strong female character as the, as a protagonist. Um, so because of that, and I needed them to be closer in age, because if, if he's 17 or 16, it doesn't make sense that her 12 year old is going to, you know, save her 17 year old brother. Um, in the way that she does in the book. So I wanted them to be closer in age. So I made them twins. Um, and, and when it came to Rhea, I, you know, I, I just feel like girls always have, you know, to be the nice girl, the sweet girl, the smart girl, the pretty girl, the, all of these things where I just wanted Rhea to be none of those. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to be her. And so And I wanted her to be flawed as well. So I think that's what all of us at 12 were, you know. I think we were trying to figure out ourselves. I think that age is also an age where uh, as kids, you you know, you're like, you you, you go from a kid into a mini adult in training kind of a thing. And I feel like your emotions at that age uh, just become really big. You become sort of hyper aware of everything around you like for you know at 10 you're fine and suddenly 11 and 12 you are thinking about what your friends think about you what others think about you um you start really feeling these comparisons if you have a sibling doesn't necessarily have to be a twin like I had an older sister you know you're always constantly compared by somebody or the other um you start picking up on things like you know Rhea picks up on the fact that you know her mother is not the quintessential mother uh, figure that, you know, one has, like she's different from the other parents and she doesn't have a dad. And so she's navigating through all of these things. And, you know, I feel like it's, it's almost um, not realistic for an 11, 12 year old, just be as a sunny, happy character all the time. Like even Leela, who's her best friend, I write, uh, you know, she, that's her personality. She's a very positive character, but I do allude to the fact that she too has her own insecurities and she is also battling some of her own sort of uh, issues with her family. And I, so I wanted kids to relate to that, that at 11 and 12, kids always turn around, I mean, uh, adults always turn around and go like, oh, you're just a kid, you'll be fine. Like, you know, they're fine. Like, they don't know anything. No, they do. They know a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and and I feel like, you know, that's, again, that's when your personality as a 
as an adult in training sort of starts to grow. Um, so with all of those things in mind, I wanted Ria to be flawed. Um, and she, I, I made her, you know, she she's a selfish girl because I think she kind of has to look out for herself. And so she has to be selfish. She doesn't get the love that she wants from her mother because the mother is battling her own demons and she wouldn't speak about it. Like, you know, a lot of Indian parents will completely shield their children from what's going on. So you really don't know what's happening behind the scenes. And so, you know, she's left with so many questions. Um, she has her grandmother who is really wonderful, but again, she doesn't get any answers about her dad from her. Um, she and her brother were really tight growing up. But then again, you know, you hit 11, 12, and he's getting more popular in school and he's more extroverted than she is. And uh, so again, he has more friends and she sort of just closes in on herself and just goes, you know, deeper into her own shell. And so she's kind of battling with all of these things. So I, I wanted her to have to deal with her own um insecurities and her own challenges she like she and i wanted her to overcome that in addition to yes the external plot of you know actual obstacles like where she has to fight these evil serpent lilies and you know uh, do these things that are related to her quest and finding her brother i think that was really important for me because i wanted kids to relate to ria not everyone's gonna have their brother being kidnapped and they have to travel around <laughs> you know <laughs> uh and so i wanted her to have her own inner struggles and and show kids that you know things can be tough and things can be hard but you can overcome them i think that's something that adults can learn from as well um yeah there's something about that age like 11 mm -hmm. and 12 where uh you're really growing into yourself yep. and you and you know you're going to be selfish i feel like every kid mm -hmm. is selfish because yeah. you know they think that they're the center of the world and they don't <laughs> fully appreciate uh you know their parents and yes. they don't understand them so yeah i think that's something that like even adults can really relate to which is amazing because this <laughs> is a middle grade book yes and that's the other thing the thing about middle grade that i love is i feel like it's it's a genre that a kid and an adult can equally enjoy, which is a very rare thing for books because they're obviously so age specific. But I think middle grade is that one thing. I mean, yes, you have why, but why, you know, can't be enjoyed by 11 year old. So middle grade can really be enjoyed across the board. So I also wanted to write that uh, for an adult reader as well to find like more depth in the book if they looked to see it. Yeah, and I feel like middle grade is that kind of that sweet spot where yeah. it's still okay for the parent to read to their child yes. from that series. Because like, you're not going to have a parent read a YA to their child, no. especially if it's like a horny one, right? Like you don't want to <laughs> go no. there. Nobody's going to win in that situation. <laughs> exactly. And it, it it also gives, you know, it's it, I love it. It's just, it, it gives you room to be have childlike wonder and explore your imagination and take it to the farthest ends of the world because you know kids that's the most amazing thing about kids like they can suspend belief and they'll be like yeah i'm i'm going on this i'm going <laughs> this ride with you you take me wherever you want me to go um and then at the same time you can explore really deep emotions and um human struggles whilst going on these fantastical amazing adventures and you know doing these thrilling things and i so i love that about middle grade and then middle grade fantasy especially yeah one thing i really like about middle grade fantasies and i guess like detective stories is the puzzles yeah. um ria is a big puzzle fan and uh there are prophecies and riddles and i'm always really impressed when authors write that in because Obviously, that prophecy did not exist before. The rhymes did not exist before. So I just wanted to ask, like, how did you um, come up with them? How did you, like, structure them into your story? You know, I I never thought about it. I, it just came to me. I was like, I, I guess, like you said, I just loved detective books and mystery books. I would say mystery novels mostly. And... I love prophecies and I just love all those elements. So basically just threw everything in this book and I <laughs> hoped something would stick. Um, and I realized this very recently, you know, I say that I, I never knew I wanted to be a writer, which I didn't. But uh, the last time I was back home, I usually go every year, but obviously I haven't 
since 2019. Um, I went back to my parents' house and my childhood room, and I've kept all my stuff very like carefully. All of my book-related stuff and all of my creative stuff is kept very uh, carefully. So I went through it. I hadn't been through it in such a long time. And I forgot that when I was... I must have been nine or eight, eight or nine or maybe 10. And I found fan fiction. And I don't know if you guys know the show Captain Planet. We used to get oh, that. Yeah. Um, I wrote Captain Planet fan fiction. Wow. And you, I was you like, were such a cool kid. I was so cool. <laughs> guys, you have no idea. I was like, wow. And I had inserted myself as well as one of the five. So somehow we were six and I had my own what was, power? Power. what was I your power? I don't know. I have to go back and see. <laughs> but I had something. I forget what that was. Um, you know, all see of how was invested taken. we are in the fiction <laughs> that I we'll know, right? never read. <laughs> it was so bad. But I have, and I had written like an episode. And so everyone had dialogues about that. So I had that. And then I found poetry that I had written. Um, really deep stuff. And this was maybe not when I was eight or nine. But when I was in university. So I was probably like, 19 or 18 and I wrote about discovering myself as like what I want to do and how it's hard it's not happening and like my first real boyfriend like all this deep stuff and like when I was done with university and I thought like oh my god I was so equipped with life like I don't know what I really want to do it was like really I was like oh and all poetry and so I guess I did you know, I tell you this like maybe you guys know as if you've known me my whole <laughs> life but I guess I did enjoy uh, writing rhymes and uh, writing poetry and and so I I just like I said and and I love that so I guess I just I just threw that in and I loved it <laughs> I thought it was great even when I wrote it uh, I was like oh my god this is amazing and I'm actually surprised that they're very close to what I had originally written very very close all wow, the rhymes that's impressive yes and I almost worked backwards from my rhyme to include things in the story. So if yeah, because said, the, yeah. the rhymes have clues in them for yes. Rhea to follow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, so, yeah. So I don't want to spoil anything in this book, but I think it's it's a good uh, disclaimer. There is a cliffhanger at the end, you guys. Uh, mm-hmm. So I am guessing that there is a sequel coming. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit more about that? When can we what can we expect and when can we expect it? Yes, so it's going to be a trilogy. I'm writing the dreaded middle of the trilogy <laughs> as we speak. You mean the um, best book? The, the best. Book's always the best. Always one. the best. <laughs> always the best. So you know, there's no pressure. I'm just going to ride this wave. Um. Oh my gosh. So yeah. So it's it's uh, it's going to be a trilogy. The second book is uh, scheduled to be released in fall 2022. Scares me. Um. But it's uh. Yes, it's a cliffhanger. We see, we will see, we'll see more of the villain that we've left off in this book. But we're also going to see, uh, meet a new character who is very great, to say the least. And I really enjoyed writing this character. So now I'm having like my doubts about how great I want this character to be. (laughs) But yes, it's a morally great character. And um, there's a super villain also in the picture and I feel like the second book uh is just it's gonna take it gives me the opportunity to spend more time in Astranthia so I'm hoping to make Astranthia bigger and bolder and um and take readers to other places in the realm that we've obviously not explored in the first book um we're also gonna get a couple of new kids um joining our original cast of characters um and so, yeah, I'm I'm currently exploring the dynamics of the group, um, kind of touching upon, kind of, you know, the, the the personality elements that were sort of told in the first book because you you don't see Rohan interacting with the kids in school as much or Ria with the kids, but you know you 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 know of their personalities because I've told you uh, kind of what they are like. So I'm 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 hoping to show that dynamic play out in person so we get we have more of everything let's just put it that way more of everything all charging towards hopefully a very climactic end with a third book yeah there's going to be a big battle as well awesome (laughs) yeah always excited for the dark middle chapter of a trilogy yeah i'm always excited to see uh the 
the world beyond the map of the first book, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. The, well, the, the, the funny thing about the map is, uh, because I had to obviously design it and then send it to the illustrator. It's like, uh, nobody says this, you know, you uh, as readers, you look at maps and like, I love maps and books. But then when you're the author and they're like, okay, we're going to give you two maps. I'm so excited. But send us sort of the references. And then I'm just like, oh, shoot, I have to create this. It was so loosely vivid, but loosely in my mind, I have to translate this on paper and then it's going to get printed. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And so I started sketching out as I like looked again, researched so much. And then I realized when I sketched out Astranthi and I put in all the places that existed in the book, I was still small. And I was like, oh my God, I have to expand this. So then I was like, okay, I'll just show one part of Astranthia. But even <laughs> then I had to create names and make up places. Like there's, if you look at the map, uh, there's the desert of perpetual dusk. It does not exist in this book, in the first book. But it, then I had to start thinking about the second book that I had not thought about at all while I was making the map <laughs> of the first book. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, but so yeah, even in the present map in the book, you will see places that don't exist in the first book, but we will definitely visit because I've put <laughs> it down there on paper uh, in book two and then, or maybe book three. Well, on that note, thank you so much, uh, Payal. This was such a fun conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your book and I'm pretty sure young readers who are really into portal stories and magical fantasies will enjoy it as well. Uh, where can our listeners find you, by the way? Uh, yes, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Um, readers can find me on all the socials. Uh, they can find me on Instagram at Pyle Doshi Author, uh, on Twitter at Pyle D Writes. Um, I'm also on Facebook, and uh, you can go to my website, which is PyleDoshiAuthor.com. Awesome. Um, the first book of the series comes out on June 15th. Um, so you still have some time to pre order. If you listen to this podcast on the day of, and if you listen to this later on, just go get the book for your son, daughter, niece, nephew, or just a kid you know down the street. Or yeah. just for yourself. Or just for yourself. Yeah. Or if any adult likes middle grade fantasy. I say this book is for 8 to 99 years of age. That's, <laughs> that's the way I pitch it. <laughs> Amazing. If you're 100, you're out of luck. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Pyle. Thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba and have a great book launch. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful day. And that was our conversation with Pyle Doshi, the author of Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar. Again, the book is coming out on June 15th, 2021. So if you're listening to this episode um, on the date of release, um, it'll be out in about a week. So you still have time to pre-order it if you want. Um, Rira, that was a really fun talk. Yeah, um, we totally did not like mention it in, in the podcast because it was like very vain of me. But I like the fact that two of the characters have very similar names to mine because <laughs> uh, you have you have Rhea and you have Leela, and I'm like, this is this is pretty much me. I'm yeah. <laughs> like, Rhea, I, Rhea I, plus Leela is Rhea. Rhea. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for the month of June, we are reading Happy Endings by Tian Kim Lam. Um, it is about a sex uh, toy business. Uh, we've talked about this on the podcast when the book deal was announced. So it's a sexy second chance romance about exes with unfinished business. And the business happens to be a sex toy business. Uh, it is great. Uh, <laughs> I like it's so it's so rare for like like I, I don't know like sex ed and positive like sexual activity to be like embedded into an Asian American story I don't know if I'm making sense here but it sounds sexy and it sounds real fun so <laughs> I picked this book for <laughs> no I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. down you know um, it meets the one requirement we have for this podcast which is to be written by an Asian or Asian American. So, you know, I don't make the rules. I just love picking like steamy reads for Marvin to read because it's always really fun to like she knows, hear his perspective. Of, she knows I would not read this on my own. No, I definitely not. And Marvin has a habit of reading audiobooks for, not reading, but like <laughs> listening to audiobooks of steamy romances. And it's like, why would you do that to yourself? I don't know. 
it gets very awkward when I have it to like very awkward. when I'm in my car and I have the book on and then I'm like oh, I, I need to get some Starbucks and I drive up I pull up up to the drive through window and I, I okay time to turn this down because they don't need to hear what I'm listening to or do they um. <laughs> just you know blast it you know I you think this just yell out like this is art <laughs> see it's like you don't have this experience when I make you read science fiction because it doesn't matter right but um, the yeah. thing is, we are breaking gender norms here. <laughs> Romance can be read by more than just cis women. It's for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm... Yeah. When we first started this podcast, I had read exactly zero sex scenes on the page. And, and then we read heroin comics. Yeah. That, that, and then I popped that cherry right away in the first book. So, you know, you know, at this point, just bring it. Bring it on. I mean, to be fair, I didn't know that heroin <laughs> complex would have sexy scenes either. I was taken aback as well. I mean, we should have known because Sarah Kuhn wrote that book. Yeah, but I didn't know Sarah Kuhn back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was her debut novel. We were still strangers back then. Uh, all right. Uh, anyway, but it's going to be a fun episode, you guys. So yeah. um, if you, I will put up a thread on Goodreads. So if you have already read the book, share your thoughts. Tell us your thoughts on the steaminess. Yeah, looking forward to discussing that episode with you and some special guests. But until then, um, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, thank you so much for listening. And as always, um, if you want to support our podcast, um, check out our bookshop.org page uh, where Rira has a bunch of curated lists of books by Asian and Asian American authors. Any purchases you make on that portal will help support the podcast as well as local bookstores. So um, we definitely appreciate your help. Thank you for everyone who have bought books from our bookshop. Um, you've covered like half of this year's posting piece. So thank you so much for, for the yeah, support. Yeah. Um, but until next time, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. All right, bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Kim? Steve? Where have you been? We haven't seen you for seven years. Has, has it been that long? Uh-huh. Oh. Uh, I was on a fishing boat. Training. It's part of the plan. Pla- what training? What plan? The, the, the third season of the Korean Drama Podcast! Okay, we're doing this again? Okay, but there's no body switching in this one, right? No! The only thing we're switching is the fact that we're going to watch a good drama this time from 2020 called Itaewon Class, a story about starting a restaurant and a dish that Koreans love called Revenge. I thought you were going to say kimchi jjigae. I thought you were going to say juke. Those two. Koreans love those two. Listen to the Korean Drama Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.